I trust that uh, I trust that God's word has been sufficient enough for you this morning. I hope and trust that you didn't come waiting for some kind of spark to get you going. Maybe uh, waiting to see a particular individual or hear a particular song or expect a certain key change that might elicit some kind of something. Uh, but uh, I trust that God's word. Uh, as we have read it and sung it, we prayed to him, has been sufficient for you. And I hope so, because we come now to the time of our service where we get that um, in earnest. We have been in Exodus for quite some time as a church, if you're visiting with us. That's our normal rhythm, is walking through the book of Exodus, where we have been for several weeks in the law code. Um, you see me up here, so you know that we're not going to be in Exodus today. Perhaps you're pleased to have a break from law school. Lonnie said for several weeks that we're going back to law school this morning, and maybe that's what it has felt like. Um, but uh, we're going to take a break from Exodus, and we'll return to that next week. And uh, as you know, today we'll be in our other study in Philippians. I looked at the calendar this week, and it has actually been five months since we were together in Philippians. It's quite, been quite some time. And all that means is we've been walking in Exodus consistently um, every week. Uh, but because of that, I wanted to uh, start this morning with uh, a, a, an update and a recap of where we have been. You know, um, when, we, when we preach through an epistle, like, like a letter, like Philippians, we're, we're not receiving it as it would have been received, right? No one, no one opens a letter, reads a few lines or less, folds it, puts it back in the envelope, and then comes at it again the next day. Much less, you know, the next week or five months from now. You know, so you don't, you don't read a letter that way, right? None of us read letters that way. And these letters were not read that way initially, and we're not meant to read them that way now. So that's one way to, to, to approach the epistles when you read them on your own. is not just in these little bitty isolated chunks that are disconnected from the rest, but as a letter, as you would read any letter. But because it's been some time, I wanted to update us, to, to calibrate us on where we are in Philippians and where we have been. Of course, this is written by Paul. Paul is in prison, likely in Rome. Uh, the first chapter and a half or so from the beginning up through chapter 1, verse 26, Paul spends with greetings and prayers for the Philippians, giving them an update on his ministry, the fact that the gospel is indeed still going forth. There in Rome, even as he is in prison. We get that in that section, by the way, that, that famous part where he says to live is Christ and to die is gain. He's just updating them on his own outlook, how what he thinks might happen with the end of this prison sentence. Will it end in his release? Will it end in his death? He's unsure. The first major section of instruction of Philippians starts in chapter 1, verse 27, and runs through chapter 2, verse 18. Uh, this section begins with what I understand to be the supreme imperative of the whole letter, which he says in 127, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And I think that sits as a banner over the entire letter of Philippians. More literally, he says, this is something the Philippians would have picked up on, live worthily as citizens of the gospel of Christ. The word the word for let your manner of life be really has something to do with citizenship. Live, live as a citizen worthily 
in the gospel of Christ. Philippi, after all, was a Roman colony, and, and, and to be a Roman citizen was a significant thing. So, so that's not by accident that Paul uses that word that references citizenship when he tells the Philippians, look, make sure that first and foremost you are living as a citizen of the gospel of Christ, not as a citizen of Rome, important as it may be to you. Citizens, therefore, this, the rest of this first section, he goes on to define what a citizen of the gospel does. What does that look like to be a citizen of the gospel of Christ? Well, we stand firm. We are others-oriented. We are marked by Christ-like humility. And these characteristics cause us to shine as lights in a dark world. This is all through chapter 2. And this section includes the, uh, the, the famous, the most famous part of this book, chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, which we've called in the past the Christ hymn. So the, the, the part of the book where, where Paul calls us to imitate Christ in his humility, ultimately leading to his death. I mention that now because that's going to become a significant part of this sermon later on towards the end. But that concludes uh, the first section, major section of instruction. He takes a break and he gives some updates on two brothers, Timothy and Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus is the one who has brought the letter to Rome from Philippi. So he's, he's, he's a Philippian himself. And then the Philippians are also kindred spirits with, with Timothy, who was with Paul when he first came through there in Acts 16. So he lets them know what's going on with these brothers and that Epaphroditus is probably going to be the one to send the letter back to them after he finishes writing. And then that leads into the second major section of instruction, which we find ourselves in now. Chapter 3, verse 1 through chapter 4, verse 1. Uh, this has been the last uh, few sermons in Philippians, has been in the second major section of instruction. Paul starts with an emphasis on knowing Christ. He does not want to be defined by his heritage or his accomplishments. Remember, in this section, he's speaking against those Judaizers who were, who were uh, who purporting that one must still be circumcised in order to truly be justified to truly be in Christ and Paul Paul repudiates this and he says no no I'm not even capitalizing on my own accomplishments and heritage which by the way are much more than you Judaizers have but I'm not even capitalizing on that because all I am aiming at is to know Jesus Christ and him crucified all other things are rubbish compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ it's chapter 3 verse 8 Paul recognizes, though, that as long as he lives, he will not know Christ fully because we will still be in these broken bodies. So the way forward towards knowing him is not to coast towards the end, but to press on and pursue. So the main thrust of verses 12 and 14, 12 through 14, was not yet, I'm not yet fully like Christ, therefore, onward. Therefore, press on. I do not yet know him fully. Therefore, onward, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That was chapter 3, verse 14. And that's where we left off five months ago. So, now that we are calibrated and up to speed on that, would you please stand and let's read today's text. We're actually going to read all of chapter 3 and then the first verse of chapter 1. So we, this goes together as a unit. So we have 22 verses here. And this is the word of the Lord, Philippians 3, 1 through 4, 1. 
Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, If anyone else thinks he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. All of Paul's accomplishments. But... Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, But that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Verse 15 in today's text. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. You have seat. I mentioned earlier that there's no spark, there's no sparkle that's going to make us worship this morning. We need God and we need his spirit. So let's pray for that now. God, thank you for all that you have done in bringing us here this morning. Thank you for the souls that are here. We thank you for the opportunity to worship. God, when your spirit came into the tabernacle and came into the temple. It was a miracle that you would dwell among your people. And when your spirit left because your people had abandoned you, that's what we all deserve, is to not have you, 
because we likewise have rebelled and abandoned. So we come here this morning and we are in awe that not only do we not have to come to a tabernacle or a temple and worship you through the blood of bulls and goats, but we have you in our hearts and we're, we're talking directly to you right now without having washed our hands, without having slaughtered any animals. We're just speaking right to you right now. God, make, make, us, make us tremble at that thought. And as we hear from you, make us tremble that we are hearing from you as the Israelites heard from you at Sinai. Only now without the thunder and the lightning. And yet, we live. We thank you for this opportunity to hear from your word. We pray that it would do its work both here and in the back with our children. We pray for those teachers to to likewise be clear and precise and that your word would go forth now to those little hearts. May it go forth to our hearts as well. Amen. Well, in line with what we have seen in chapter 3 already, in line with Paul's desire to know Christ and therefore pursue Christ, today's verses present a vision of awaiting Christ. The title of the sermon this morning is Awaiting Christ. And as we await, as we wait, Paul calls his readers, he calls the Philippians and us to three things. We are called to walk the way of the faithful, to avoid the path of the enemy, and to see the hope of the end. We are called to walk the way of the faithful, avoid the path of the enemy, and see the hope of the end. Let me reread verses 15 and 17 as we consider the way of the faithful. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. It it may seem a curious decision, given how the paragraphs break in your Bible, but I decided to break the last sermon at verse 14, One of those reasons was because there was so much content to cover in verses 12 to 14. I didn't want to do any injustice there. But also because we start to see a shift in verse 15. So far, up through verse 15 in chapter 1, Paul has been speaking autobiographically. He's been speaking of his own testimony and the way he approaches the, the, the walk of the Christian, the walk of Christ. And now in verse 15, we see a shift in that Paul begins to apply the distinctives of his own testimony to his readers. So, when we hear this, this application now, let those of us who are mature think this way, This means that everything we've read about Paul's own testimony in verses 7 to 14 is not simply Paul's experience. The call in verse 15 to think this way is an invitation to reread Paul's testimony, not simply as Paul's story, but now as a paradigm for the whole Christian life. Paul says, adopt my frame of mind and make it your own. 
This is the challenge Paul gives to those of us who are mature. Let those of us who are mature. Now, I want to note that the word for mature in verse 15 is the same word translated in verse 12 as perfect. And the root of these words is, an, is a noun that you guys, one of those Greek words we might be familiar with, it's telos. You've heard of the word teleological, that kind of argument, but telos might be one of those words you're familiar with at least. It's an elastic word that has a range of meaning. The noun can be anything from end or perfection to, to mature and completion. But I, I bring that out as, to show this. In verse 12, Paul says he is not yet teleos, that'd be the adjective. And then in verse 15, Paul includes himself among those who are teleos. So Paul is at one time both this and not this. And I bring that out to reinforce the fact that this confirms what we saw in the last few verses. There is an already and a not yet dynamic in the Christian life. Paul himself is saying, I am both this and not this at the same time. I am mature in the sense that I think this way about Christ, but I'm not yet perfect. I am both already and not yet. So the call then goes out to all of those who are in between the already and the not yet, which, by the way, is all Christ followers. If you are between the already and the not yet, which is you, if you are following Christ, think this way. Literally, he says, let us think this Now, the ESV supplies the word way there. There's actually no word for way. It's just let us think this. So we have to ask ourselves this what? Think what? Right? What are we supposed to think? Obviously, we could look to the the immediately preceding verses and say, well, we're supposed to have this Christ-pursuing mind. That's the way we're supposed to think. And and that's not not wrong. That's true. I'll explain more of this uh, later in the sermon, but I, I understand this text to be tying together several of the themes we see in Philippians. So for that reason, I think Paul has more than just to say, have this Christ pursuing mind. I think we're supposed to zoom out and see Philippians as a whole and hear him saying, have this others oriented, chapter two, verse three, Christ imitating, chapter 2, verse 5, self-emptying, 2, 7, rubbish forsaking, 3, 8, past forgetting, 3, 13, future pressing, 3, 14, frame of mind. Everything I have described for you in these two major sections of instruction, that's the frame of mind I'm after. That's the frame of mind we should all have. All of these are distinctives to the pursuit of Christ. And if we skip to the, if we peek to the end of today's today's section, we're going to see that this behavior feeds into an eternal and glorious reality. So when we see all of these things packed into the mindset we are supposed to have, I think we're reminded that every aspect of the Christian life, every faithful step will bear fruit into eternity. Every sacrifice, every thought taken captive to Christ, every decision to not sin, even when it's small and you're alone and nobody knows, every unseen moment of resolve to stay on the narrow path, every one will bear fruit into eternity. Nothing is wasted. Paul calls them to this frame of mind. Where every single second is precious. 
and useful and bearing fruit for eternity. And specifically, in verse 17, he calls them to imitate himself. Now, this is not pride. Paul is not saying that he is a superior Christian. He's not saying that he's the chief of Christians. Indeed, he calls himself the chief of sinners in 1 Timothy 1.15. So, He's not saying this out of pride. He's saying this because he has shown himself to be be following and pursuing the Christ way. He has described himself as one who has the Christ mind. And according to Philippians 2, 5 through 11, here's where this is coming back into play. The Christ way is the cruciform way. It's the cross-shaped way. If you're paying attention, you heard this word in Exodus a week or two ago about the cruciform life. In, in, in Philippians, this has been brought out several times. The cruciform life means uh, believing in Christ means suffering for his sake, chapter 1, verse 27. Or in 3.10, knowing Christ means sharing in his sufferings and becoming like him in his death. This is the, this is the shape of Paul's life. It's in the shape of the cross. Paul is following the way of Christ, and he's inviting the Philippians to do the same. He's essentially saying what he will say in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Follow me as I follow Christ. And not just Paul, because he also says in 17, keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. This is not special, once again, not special status claimed by Paul. There are others whom the Philippians know who also have this same frame of mind to whom the Philippians should also look as faithful examples. Paul speaks here of a universal reality which we all know. The example set by others is a powerful tool of influence. We all know this. None of us need to be reminded that our children follow the others. Right? I often tell my seven-year-old that he sometimes has the power to set the tone for his siblings, for how they interact. Right? We know, of course, this is how it works with us as parents. Whichever direction we go, our kids will indeed be following us. This is a universal reality. The example set by others is a powerful tool of influence. And here, I think the takeaway is bigger than just, therefore, be careful who you follow. Because the emphasis is not so much on the who as it is the way. The emphasis is not so much on Paul the man as it is the way Paul walks. Not so much on the individual as the Christ way that that individual represents. So I think we can go ahead and take a few challenges for us here at this point. I'll, I'll just do these briefly because I, I think they're pretty obvious. The first one is, what kind of walk is worth imitating for you? Everything in our world tells us the kind of walk that we ought to be imitating, the kinds of things we ought to be pursuing are those that are shaped by success and comfort and fill in the blank with all kinds of things that we just intrinsically know and are pulled towards. Meanwhile, the way that Paul is walking and the way that Christ has walked and the way that we are being called to walk ends at Golgotha, right? The way that we are called to walk ends with a cross and a bloody Savior hanging on it. 
It's a very different way than the way that we are constantly pulled towards. So first, what kind of walk is worth imitating for you? As a Christian, you should have a very quick answer to that question. Number two, who is following you? Because somebody is. That much is guaranteed. Somebody is following you. Is your life so conformed to the way of Christ that you can say with Paul, follow me as I follow him? Number three, is this a function that you consider in your belonging to this local church? Or if you're not a member here, to to whatever church you belong to. There's both a gift and a responsibility here. It's a gift for us to be able to, to witness the example of Christ in others and be pointed to him. It's a gift. Do you see your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ as gifts from God to you that point you back to him? And second, we see this responsibility It's one of the things that we're we're committing to as we covenant to this local body is that I am willing to be an example to the rest of you as you are to me of Christ in your life. So the point is this. Do not spurn either the gift or the responsibility in this local body. Do not spurn the gift of others that are, that are examples pointing you to Christ. And do not spurn the responsibility of being a Christ-like example to those who are watching. I think this is pretty clear application. In verse 15, Paul inserts an interesting caveat. He says, if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. And I, I want to I mention this because it, it does seem a little uh, thrown in there and a little hard to, at least for me it was at first, to understand what he's doing. Uh, he's still addressing the mature. So we're still in the category of mature when Paul addresses those who may think otherwise. Because those outside of the mature category, he's going to call enemies in verses 18 and 19. So we're not in that category. He's still addressing the mature And I think his point here is saying, look, if you have differing opinions on issues here or there, that's okay, and I trust the Lord's going to work that out in you. But he really just brings up the caveat only to disregard it as saying, look, smaller points of disagreement are just not my, they're not irrelevant, they're just not my focus right here. I trust the Lord will reveal to you what you need to know. My focus for now is that you would set your face like flint towards knowing this Christ as your greatest possession in most fervent pursuit. And then he confirms that in verse 16 with this rejoinder to his caveat, only let us hold true to what we have attained. And the only is meant to contrast that previous statement. It's like, it's like he's saying, look, you may have small points of disagreement. Nevertheless, my point is only the big picture here is keep in step with the Christ way that you have seen in me and that you have seen in others. Walk the way of the faithful. And apparently this counsel is needed because there is another way of the non-faithful that he wants the Philippians to avoid. So this is our, come to our second point here, avoid the path of the enemy in verses 18 through 19. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies 
of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. There's an obvious contrast here. The Christ way, the way of Paul and others, is to be imitated. The other way, the way of enemies, is to be avoided. And Paul identifies the counterfeit. By identifying the counterfeit, he sharpens the definition of the real thing. That's what he's doing here. By identifying the path of the enemy, it helps us to sharpen the identification of the path of the faithful. It's not easy to, uh, to, to say precisely who Paul has in mind. Um, he's mentioned a, a couple different sets of opponents or rivals uh, was, was the, were the folks in chapter 1 who were preaching out of envy and rivalry. It can't be them because Paul still considers them Christians. They were still preaching the true gospel just with wrong motives. And it also doesn't seem to be those that he mentioned in chapter 3 verse 2, the dogs, the, the evildoers, those who mutilate the flesh, because those were the ones advocating for justification by law. Those were the the Judaizers, and here we see something different. We see not a a direction towards law. What we see is, is a direction toward license with this group to avoid. So we can identify them by this much. They're known to Paul and the Philippians. Paul says, I have, I have often told you of them. So we might not know exactly who they are, but the Philippians surely know who Paul's talking about. They were probably once following Christ, at least in earnest at the time, because Paul says he's, he's, they, they are coming to his mind with tears. So they were probably once among, thought they were walking on the path of the faithful. And then third, it seems clear that their departure from the Christ way has something to do with worldly pursuit. And he describes this path in four ways in verse, in verse 19. Number one, the destination, is, uh, the, their end is destruction. Their destination is not the same as the destination that Paul is on. Paul's end is to know Christ fully and obtain the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The end of these enemies of the cross is destruction. Two separate directions. Number two, he says their God is their belly. This is another, a hard one to identify what that precisely means, but it probably means something like their appetite is God. Their appetite is their God. Whatever the flesh desires, that's what the flesh gets. I am free in Christ after all. And we know the desires of the flesh. They're contrasted with the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 15. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. That's how Paul puts a period on the list of the fruit of the flesh in Galatians 5. Those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. In other words, their end is destruction. Number three, 
Their glory is in their shame. Their their satisfaction is found in things they ought to be ashamed of. Paul writes in Romans 6, Romans chapter 6, I don't don't remember the the verse. In Romans 6, he writes about how Christians should look back on their old way of life and recognize the rotten fruit that that way produced. That rotten fruit of the things of which you are now ashamed, is what he says in Romans 6. And these folks, though, find glory. They find satisfaction in the things that they should be ashamed of. The fourth description here, I I understand to be a, a summary of all of them. Their minds are set on earthly things. While Paul is following the cross way, these enemies are, of, of the cross are following the way of the world. Plug, plug, plug in whatever that might mean. The list in Galatians 5 gives us several things we could plug in. They're following the, the way of their flesh. And the point here is that to imitate this group is to follow them right into hell. So let this be a reminder to you, Christian. This is not new for you as a Christian, but let this be a reminder that the things of earth, understood to be all the the pursuits and the works of the flesh, are counter to the Christ way, incompatible with the way of the cross. And in fact, to pursue those things is to be an enemy of the cross. You may be here this morning and uh, would not call yourself a Christian, or you might be here and just, just wondering if you are on the path of the faithful. Maybe you haven't thought about it much. Maybe you just assume that you are because you went to church when you were younger and you were baptized, but haven't really considered much of that since then. Let me, let me just ask you to hear this carefully. It is not possible, it is not possible to follow the course of this world and have some Jesus on the side. It is not possible. You are either an enemy of the cross or you go the way of the cross. There is no in-between. There is a way of life and there is a way of death. But here's the good news for you. If you are either know you're not a Christian or you're just not sure because you haven't really considered it very much, the call goes out to you now. I'm not saying that you're stuck. The, the text is not saying you're stuck on the road to hell. The text and everything you have seen this morning is a call to say, come back. You were not intended for that. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. The work of Christ on the cross, bloodied, beaten, having given himself over to the creation that he himself made, subjected himself to the works of his own hands, died. Obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That work is sufficient to bring you off of the path as an enemy, and put you on the path of the faithful. So, unbeliever this morning, this is an invitation for you. 
If you're not on the way of the faithful, you are an enemy of the cross. That's what we hear Paul saying. This language of path and way is appropriate because the contrast here between the mature and the enemies is on the walk. We read this in verse 17, keep your eyes on those who walk. And then in verse 18, many walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Obviously, this is not literal. We instinctively know we're not talking about putting one foot in front of the other. We're talking about a metaphorical way of life, a walk. We could say a way of living is the same here. But, but with, this, uh, with this mention, this emphasis on the way or the path, my mind was drawn as I considered this this week to Psalm 1. Two contrasting walks in Psalm 1. What we see is that there is one who walks and stands and sits in the counsel of the wicked, in the way of sinners, in the seat of scoffers. That's one way, one path. Versus the other path of the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord and meditates on it day and night. There is a way of the righteous, there is a way of the wicked. And in Psalm 1, the point is that the difference between these two is that the righteous live by God's word. So the application back to Philippians for us is that the more we bathe ourselves in God's word, the more we will recoil against the earthly desires on the path of the enemy. And we have to walk through that path. If you're familiar with Pilgrim's Progress, Christian has to walk through Vanity Fair to get to the celestial city. But the more we disregard God's word, the more the enticements and the allurements of Vanity Fair are stronger and stronger. But the more that we bathe ourselves in God's word, those things are not palatable. They're not acceptable. We repudiate those things. It's like, it's like touching a hot plate. Our drift, we will drift in vanity fair, if you will, if we are untethered to God's word. We will drift. And those, those allurements will, will become more powerful if we are untethered from God's word. So in the same way that we have two paths presented before us here, go back to Psalm 1 and consider the two paths presented before us there. One, the way of the righteous, drinking deeply from God's word. Two, the way of the wicked, disregarding his word. I mentioned earlier uh, about how Paul has now Uh, shooing us away from the temptation to license. These enemies have taken license with their freedom in Christ, presumably. And now Paul has warned us in in the scope of this chapter against these two major errors, law and license. Law and license have been in the scope, in the crosshairs for Paul in chapter 3. Like I said, with those Judaizers in earlier in chapter 3 that were, that were trying to convince that there was some kind of prerequisite, some kind of status, some kind of achievement for them, it was circumcision, that you needed in order to be truly saved. In that error Paul addressed in chapter 3, verse 9, we are found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness of God 
depends on faith. So law has been in the crosshairs, and now license is in the crosshairs. Paul warns of the opposite but equally damning error of taking license with our freedom in Christ. Because I am saved and secure in Christ, I can pursue this life however I want. No, Paul says, that makes you an enemy. If we are righteous through the law, Christ died for no reason. Paul says in Galatians 2.21. If we allow Christ's righteousness to lead us to license, we are his enemies. He writes here in Philippians 3. So I bring those together. I want to put before us all of chapter 3 to say, Four Corners Church, may there be no whiff of law or license in our gospel here. Amen? The last few verses of this section, verses 20 through chapter 4, verse 1, bring us to our final point, to see the hope of the end. And here Paul does something perhaps unexpected. He moves the topic at hand from very, I don't know quite how to put this, but very observable relationship sort of earthy, being able to, to see this in another person and avoid this thing on the ground. He moves the conversation from that and in an instant he stretches our perspective as far as it can possibly go. Verses 15 and 19, have, 15 through 19, have us thinking about individuals and, and considering our example to others and, and those that we're following. Very, very practical stuff. But as soon as you start into verse 20, we are instantly ripped from the present and transported to the new heavens and the new earth. Did you feel that jolt when you were reading this earlier? Did you feel this Paul ripping us out of the present and putting us into the future? Because apparently, the hope of the end is meant to animate our present walk. That's sort of the big idea with these last few verses. The hope of the end is meant to animate our present walk. So let me read verse 20 through chapter 4, verse 1. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. The beginning of verse 20 brings us back to the concept of citizenship. If you're, if you're paying attention, you already recognize this, that we've mentioned so many times from chapter 1, verse 27. Remember, that would have been, that would have been palpable for the Philippians to hear uh, that, that, that citizenship word in chapter 1, 27. And here it comes up again. It's, it's, it's got the same root in there. Both words do. In chapter 1, verse 27, Paul encourages them to walk worthily as citizens in the, gospel, in, in, the, in the kingdom. And now he returns to that idea to present a hope that informs our present walk. And this jolt, remember I mentioned the jolt from this, this earthly to the future, is meant to convey this sharp contrast between the enemies of the cross 
in the way of the faithful. Of course our minds aren't set on earthly things. We don't belong here. We're citizens of a far and better country. The things here have no allure for it. That's the point of the contrast here between verses 19 and verse 20. So Paul stretches our perspective so that this future hope might inform our present pursuit. Now, there's a lot going on in verse 20 and 21, but, but the first thing I want to show you is that the, the, main, the main thing here is that everything in these verses is built around the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you look at verse 20, the Lord Jesus Christ is actually the object of that whole sentence. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await, what do we await? A Savior. So the, the focal point in verse 20 is on the one whom we await from heaven. It's a short sentence, but if you're reading it, everything is pointing to the words at the end. The focus is on the Lord Jesus Christ. And then verse 21 is one long relative clause subordinate to the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you were, if you were diagramming this, you would have the Lord Jesus Christ. And underneath that, you would have the one who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. Or you would have the one who... Uh, the. Uh, yeah, you would have the one who will transform our lowly body. So in between verse 20 and 21, the, the point I'm trying to make here, that didn't make any sense. <laughs> Jesus is the center. It's like the point of everything, right? Of course, I just pulled out of a hat. Jesus is the center. No, I didn't. It really is. Grammatically, it's the center of verse 20 and 21. He is the one who will transform. The reason I say that is this. It's important that we see Jesus as the animating feature of these verses, because Paul has not said, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing value of having a glorified body. Not what he said. Important, but not what he said. He also didn't say, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing value of being in heaven. Important, but not what he said. Because neither of those statements go far enough. They don't end with Jesus. That's why Jesus has to be the center of verses 20 and 21. Given everything else we're about to talk about around there, Jesus is the center. The person of Jesus himself. Our faith, by the way, is based on a person. Not an idea. Not a set of values. It's based on a person. It's based on the long-awaited he of Genesis 3.15. And the hope of the end is built around him. And here's the neat thing. After we get that settled, he didn't come only to save us, but to make us like him. So Philippians 3 asks us one big, this whole chapter really, asks us one big question. As we consider the center of verses 20 and 21, is Jesus what you treasure most. At the, end, at the end of the day, if Philippians 3 were asking one main question, I think that's what it would be. Is Jesus what you treasure most? That's the heartbeat, the ultimate heartbeat of the Christian. I mentioned earlier how I understand these, these, cup, these few verses here, 20 and 21, to tie together several themes we've seen in the letter. So I'm going to ask you to Strap in for a minute so we can consider how. Because I'm, I'm, not, 
I'm not making this up, but you do need your Bible, and it would be helpful if you can at least get back to chapter 2. So we're going to stay in Philippians. I think these verses tie together the whole letter. While, while we pursue Christ and await him, we're not left, we're not left to just figure out on, on our own how to do that, but Jesus has walked the path already that we are being called to walk. And he's given us the roadmap. So what I want to do is kind of see how that roadmap is laid out for us in Philippians. Paul gives us some clues in this text that point us back to chapter 2, 5 through 11. And that's going to be, I think what Paul's doing, is pointing us back to 2, 5 through 11 as the paradigm or the roadmap for the path he has called us to walk. So for this to work, I need you to have in your mind three sections of Philippians. Okay, so the first section is going to be chapter 2, 5 through 11. That's the Christ hymn. That's the one we've talked about several times already this morning. So that's section number one. Section number two is chapter 3, verses 1 through 14. It's where we see the example of Paul. And then section number three is today's text, chapter 3, 15 through 21. What I want to do is, is if if 2, 5 through 11 really is the roadmap, we should be able to overlay our text onto 2, 5 through 11 and see some correspondence, see some pointer from our text back to 2, 5 through 11, from Paul's example back to 2, 5 through 11. So let's see if there are points of contact between our text and the Christ hymn of 2, 5 through 11. Here we go. What we're doing, by the way, this is helpful just to explain. This is how we read our Bible. We're reading one text in light of another, right? This is is a way in which these texts are connected. We're reading one text in light of another, and we're not just making up the connections. We're going to see how when you lay one text over the other, the author, Paul, has intended us to see these connections and then make the connection ourselves back to read this text in light of that text. Okay, so let's do overlay number one. Are there parallels between the Christ hymn of 2, 5 through 11 and our text today, 3, 15 through 21? I believe there are. I think there's five. Number one, we are told to have the mind of Christ, chapter 2, verse 5. And here we're told to be of the mind of Paul. Same word. Think this way. Have the mind of. It's connection number one. Number two, the one who was in the form of God... 2, 6, and took the form of a servant, 2, 7, and was found in human form or likeness, 2, 7, will remake our human form to be in the form of his glorious body, 3, 21. There's a fourth one. He who humbled himself, 2, 8, will transform our lowly or humble, same word, bodies, 3, 21. Here's a fifth one. He who was highly exalted in glory, 2.9, will raise us to be like his glorious body, 3.21. All those, wor- those are all points of contact from today's passage back to 2.5 through 11. And it has this effect. This is the effect. The descending steps which Jesus took in humiliation, we will take in reverse, as we ascend with him. Do you see that? 
the descending steps Jesus took in two, mainly six through eight, that are reflected in this text say that we will take those steps in reverse as we ascend with him. But there's one more overlay we need to do. In verse 15, Paul is calling us to imitate him. So let's also overlay Paul's example onto the example of Christ and see what points of contact there are there. I think we have two or three main points of contact. In chapter 3, verse 10, Paul says, I aim to share in Christ's sufferings. And I think that corresponds to the whole descent of chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. We could see 2, 6 through 8 as one big suffering of Christ, stepping out of heaven, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. That's the kind of thing Paul wants to share in, he says in 3.10. Second, Paul says, I aim to be conformed to Christ in his death, also 3.10, In the way that Jesus, who was in the form of God, so he wants to be in the form of Christ's death. And now chapter 2, Jesus is in the form of God, descended to the form of a servant, and was obedient to what? To death. The very thing Paul wants to be conformed to. So now the points of contact between Paul's example and Christ's example have this effect. Paul's way, the one which we are called to imitate, is one of descent in accord with Christ's descent from heaven to humiliation to death. Now, that was a lot. Let's put all this together. Here's what I think Paul intends for us to see. These are not connections we've made up. These are all legitimate points of contact from one text to the other to the effect that Paul wants us to see this. The descending steps which Jesus took in humiliation, we will take in reverse as we ascend with him in glory, but only after we have followed Paul in the cruciform descent ourselves. You see that? The descent, I'll say it again, the descending steps that Jesus took in humiliation, we will take in reverse as we ascend with him in glory only after we have likewise descended with Paul. Because that's what Christ did. And that's what we are ultimately being called to imitate. This connection is, is stunning from Paul. The hope set before us in 321 comes only after the cruciform descent. You see that? The hope of 321 comes only after the cross-shaped descent into humility and death. We've died with Christ. The way of the faithful is downhill in the eyes of this world. That's what we see. The way of the faithful in this world is a descent. The logic of this whole connection. Why, why mention this, Paul? Why bring our why stretch our perspective so far? The logic is the cruciform, the cross-shaped descent, while painful and humiliating and toilsome, is worth it because in Christ there is an ascent beyond all possible imagination. That's what chapter 3, verse 20 and 21 is doing. When we are with Christ, the last vestiges of the old man, these bodies will be transformed. You heard Chris read from 1 Corinthians 15 this morning. 
verses 42 and 43, the body sown is perishable, but what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, raised in glory, sown in weakness, raised in power. As we have borne the image of the man of dust, so we will also bear the image of the man of heaven. You may feel that ache, that groan of Romans 8, which, by the way, the thing the creation is doing, waiting, groaning, longing, is the same word we have here for awaiting Christ. We we may feel that weight, that, that ache, and that groan, and our minds should go there. And it causes us to groan, how long, O Lord? And then Paul answers in 1 Corinthians 15, I will tell you a mystery. We shall be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall all be changed. The death of death will be finally realized. We will sing. Then, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. This transformation, this, you just put it clear, you will have a new body Christian at some point. We're not going to talk about when, but at some point, you will have a new body. I don't know what it'll look like. I don't know how old you'll be. But whatever we could possibly imagine or or come up with to explain, it will be better than that. And that's the hope Paul sets before us here. This transformation is part of, to look at uh, the end of verse 21, is part of Jesus subjecting all things to himself. He will subject our own bodies to himself. And in that subjection, he will make us like him. And get this, it gets better. We will reign with him. 2 Timothy 2, 12. This, Paul, Paul is in a musty, I imagine, small, dirty, you name it, prison room of some sort, chained to a Roman guard. Maybe hungry, maybe thirsty, Who knows how long he's been there? Does he have light? I don't know. Just imagine that kind of situation. And yet he has before his eyes the entire scope of human history. You see that? How many of us would be in that situation with this perspective? In the span of two verses, Paul has transported us all the way back to Eden. Or more precisely, he has transported us all the way forward to that garden city where we will dwell with him. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, not in this body, but in a raised, perfected, glorious body like his own. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. It's Revelation 21, by the way. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. There will be no more mourning, crying, or pain, for the former things have passed away. Behold, says the Lord, I am making all things new. We will reign with him as Adam did in the garden. Paul, in this two verses in this dirty prison cell in Rome has just connected the garden to the garden city. Do you see that? Amazing. We will be like him. The one whom you and I long to know fully and finally. Therefore, 
four corners. Stand firm thus in the Lord. Philippians 4.1. And the cool thing is, 1 Corinthians 15, the other more extended passage about the resurrection, ends in the exact same way. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Paul has a way of using the future to animate the present. He does it in Philippians. He does it in 1 Corinthians 15. So the call to us then, is to see the hope of the end that you may walk the way of the faithful. And the way of the faithful is a descent into cross-shaped living. But it ends with ascent, with the risen, reigning Savior King, the Lord Jesus Christ. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the hope that it gives us. We thank you that you would see fit in your divine wisdom to save a broken and rebellious people so that we might know you. I ask that that would sit over us would it cause us to be joyful? Would it cause us to be reverent? Would it cause us to be bold with our faith? Would it cause us to be steadfast? God, we thank you for this meal we're about to partake together. This Lord's Supper that reminds us of what you have done for us with the giving of your body and the shedding of your blood so that we might know you at all. It's in the name of your Son, we pray, the one whom we await from heaven. Amen.